Good morning. So wonderful to can be continuing in the uh, in the in the book of Romans. We've been going through the book of Romans basically a chapter a week. We're going to change that just slightly as you heard earlier as we read scripture this morning. We're going to go from Romans 7 a little into Romans 8 because Romans 7 pushes us to eight. We, we, we must go there. We have to go there. And then we'll circle around and continue with chapter eight next week. I, I took the uh, title for this morning's message. I borrowed it from one of the last books that I'm aware of, probably not the last book because he's such a prolific author, but one of the last books that uh, Louis Palau wrote, uh, Out of the Desert. Out of the desert into new life. In fact, there was one last copy of it over on our free books shelf over there. I don't know if it's still there or not. The first service probably beat you to it, but you could look. Out of the desert into new life. Or maybe if we catch the big, the, the, uh, uh, what's, what's called the, um, the overarching narrative, the macro narrative, uh, we're moving on from Moses. We're moving on from Moses to Joshua. And you'll see what I mean by that as we go. One of the things I've missed in uh, our needing to maintain some distance, and I hope you all are enjoying the business class speeding, spa- seating spacing that we have, but uh, one of the things I've missed is being able to gather the kids up front and to start uh, with them with an object lesson or something before. So I brought one of those this morning. I have here so, uh, well, a container full of broken glass, something that is probably not very useful. What can you do with broken glass? There's not a lot to be done with this. You certainly would be hard-pressed to put it back together. It's been smashed real good. In fact, it's a bit, I, I put it in this uh, plastic container because it's a little dangerous, isn't it? That uh, I'm liable to cut myself or somebody else if I did too much with this broken glass. But broken glass can be made into something unexpected, something beautiful. Reaching again into my big black bag. We have several of these animal figurines that Julie and I brought back from uh, Swaziland from the Nguenya Glassworks. And these are made, as you can imagine, from broken glass. It's a beautiful little element. We we have them lined up on our mantle when the Christmas things aren't there. And um, something can indeed, in fact, next week I'll talk a little more about what it takes to make something beautiful from broken glass. But the reason I started that illustration is because we are like broken glass. We have sharp edges. If we are not careful, we can also hurt, injure others. And it seems like there's not much that can really be done with us. Um, Can anyone put Humpty Dumpty back together again, right? What's to be done with the mess that we are, with the ruin in which we find ourselves? Can anything beautiful be made from the broken humanity broken glass. That's what I want to talk about this morning. Romans chapter 7 is going to be real. It's going to be honest with us, straight with us about the the brokenness that we find ourselves in. 
But it's also going to point us toward what will not work in putting us back together, but how God will. How God can, in fact, how God will make something beautiful out of that which was broken. I'm going to, we're going to be overviewing Romans 7. We are not going to be able to, to um, get, get uh, all the details there. But even before we start, uh, I, I, should, I should begin with something uh, in the book of Joshua. It poses a question that we're going to touch on in the midst of Romans 7 today. And that is Joshua chapter 1. Now Joshua chapter 1 begins after Deuteronomy, and the last chapter of Deuteronomy is the chapter of Moses' death. And so there's a transition in leadership from Moses to Joshua. So Joshua 1 starts out this way. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, who was Moses' assistant, what do you suppose God said at that momentous occasion? Moses, my servant, is dead. Okay, what are we going to do now? Now, therefore, in the therefore, now, because, since, now that, Moses is dead. Now, Joshua, now's your opportunity. Now, therefore, arise. There's a packed word. Arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people, into the land that I am giving to them. Now is the time, Moses, in fact, now that Moses is dead. Now is the time, Joshua, for you to lead the people into the land, in the inheritance that I am giving them, that in fact Moses could not lead them into. Moses was not able to lead them into. And that's what we're going to be talking about today in Romans chapter 7. What the law in Moses cannot do, Joshua did and gives us his new life. So, Romans chapter 7. We have read it already, so we're not going to turn and read through it again. I'll read through some of the verses as we go. And I want to give you right up front uh, three moves we'll be making. First of all, you have been raised in Jesus to walk in new life. The normal Christian life is new life. It is, it is a newness of life. It is a living new, not the way that we were stuck before. It is living in God's inheritance, in his intended beauty, not in the broken glass. We have been raised in Jesus to walk in new life. That's the first six verses. That's the overarching principle that reaches backwards into chapter 6, forward into chapter 8. Now, the problem is, how do we do that? And it might seem that the way we would do that is by law, but as good as Moses is, he cannot give you life. As good as Moses is, Moses cannot give you life. That is most of chapter 7. Verse 7 all the way to verse 23, 24 in there somewhere. As good as Moses is, and Moses is good. The law is good. Do not mishear Paul there. But the law cannot do what the law never could do. The law cannot do what, is it is, what it is unable to do for us because of our weakness. So then, how are we going to live in God's new life? You live God's fruitful new life by God's Spirit. That's what we're going to see in Romans 8. That, that's going to continue in Romans 8. We'll just dip into it this morning just so we know it's there and, and begin to get our bearings. But first of all, the overview. You could jump from uh, this opening section of 7 
say, verses 5 and 6. You could bypass the rest of 7. You could go right from there into 8 if you, didn't, if you weren't wrestling with the questions that are raised in verse 7. In fact, you could jump in some ways from Romans 6, 1 to 4, all the way into Romans 8 as well. But by wrestling with the questions versus the reality, on one side, it's, but yeah, but if grace is so gracious, why can't I do whatever I want? Should we continue in sin? So that grace might abound. That would be a non-Jewish sort of um, um, uh, uh, nations of the world. We're freed from the law. We don't have to try to keep all those things perspective. Think of the Gentile believers in Rome. On the other hand, what are you saying about the law, Paul? Are you saying that the law has never been good? Are you, are you finding fault with Moses? Are, is Paul's gospel to be understood as a gospel that dismisses, that throws aside the Old Testament? That there was something inferior about the Old Testament? Those are actually important questions because that's a big part of your Bible. What do you do with it? Should you bother with it? And so Paul's going to, going to work through those. What is the law good for? What can the law not do? What is the experience of the story of the narrative of the Old Testament? What does that tell us about our own experience? Our own story? What's going on with us? So, in the first opening verses, verses 1 to 6, you've been raised with Jesus to walk in new life. There's a principle... There is an illustration of the principle in those first six verses, and then the principle is applied. Actually, all that in, in, in just the four verses. Now, there's going to be questions in Romans 7 that you're going to have that I'm not going to answer this morning. You can email me later, text me, give a call. But I'm not going to be, in, in the pace that we're going, that would be the four years in the book of Romans pace rather than the chapter a week in the, in the, in the book of Romans pace that we are walking through. So there'll be some questions that'll linger that I'm not able to, and doesn't mean they're not valid questions. I'm trying to give you the big picture to help you continue to read Romans for yourself and the Spirit be able to apply it for you. But first of all, one of the things we ask ourselves, there's this illustration about marriage and about law. There's a principle that the law only applies until a person dies. That's verse 1. The law only applies until a person dies. The law is binding as long as he lives. When he dies, the law no longer applies. He gives an example. Let me give you an example out of the law. If a, if, if a, married, a married woman is bound by the law to her husband only as long as her husband's alive, once the husband dies, she's free to remarry. If she went and, and went and lived with somebody else before her husband dies, then things would be said about her. That's not allowed. But if her husband dies, she's no longer married to the husband. She can now be joined to somebody else. She can be married to somebody else. Okay, that's the illustration of the principle. The principle is when you, when you die, the law, law no longer applies. Now, he goes to verse 4. Likewise, my brothers and sisters, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. And so we get wrapped up in the illustration. We say, okay, well, who are we then? Are we the wife who didn't die? Or are we the husband who has died, but is he going to say here that we have died in Christ so that we can be joined to another? And that's asking the wrong question. The point is not to put us into the illustration in verses 2 and 3. The point is he has the principle, the law applies until you die. After you die, the law no longer applies. He proved that with an illustration out of marriage. Now he takes the principle, the law, after we die, the law no longer applies, and he applies the principle to us. 
Verse 4, you have died to the law in Christ so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead so that we may be bear fruit to God. The only way for us to bear fruit for God, the only way for us to live a spiritually fruitful life, Jesus says, abide in me and I in you, and you will bear much fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. How do we do that? The only way to do that is in Jesus' resurrection life whatever that means. It's not to be done by law. It's not to be done by keeping rules and lists, is his point. Verse 5, For while we were living in the flesh, in our natural human humanity, in who we are naturally, by birth, simply human, our sinful passions are aroused by law, where it work in our members to bear fruit for death, not life. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the letter. That which the law does for us, bringing fruit to death, he's going to expand on in verses 7 to 24. That new life, we have been released from the law, died to what held us so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit, that he's going to begin to unfold in Romans chapter 8. Okay? So there's the lay of the land. There's the outline. We have been died to the law so that it no longer applies so that we can live new. How do we live new? We do not live new by following the law, by by following the rules, by keeping a checklist of the things that I must do and not do, we live new in God's fruitful life by living according to the Spirit, as described in Romans chapter 8. So here we go. That laid out, that understood, as good as Moses is, he cannot give you life. Verses 7 to 12 say that the law is good as exposing sin. That's what the law does. The law exposes sin in us. It shows us what's there. It stirs it up so that we can see it. In verses 7 through 13, Paul uses a lot of past tense. In fact, all the verbs are past tense. Paul says, I, I saw this, I knew this, I did this, but it's all past tense. Now you move from verse 14 and forward in chapter 7, and all of a sudden Paul's speaking in the present. So another question that's out there is, when Paul says, I, in the first half of Romans 7, in the second half of Romans 7, who does he refer to? Is he referring to himself, or is he referring to something bigger than himself? Like, is he, is he speaking rhetorically, and he refers to all of Israel, or even all humanity? Well, there's something to that. But at the same time, when Paul says, I... And he's writing a letter to people far away from him who have had some benefit of his teaching where their paths have crossed before, possibly, but not certainly, and certainly not all of them. And what he's writing needs to be able to be taken at face value. When Paul says, I, the the clearest way that can be understood is I means me, myself, I. And when is he talking about, then, if he's referring to his own experience, even if his own experience parallels a bigger experience, and I'll get to that. There's something of Israel here. But when is he talking about his own experience? And the the natural, the easiest way to understand that is he's talking about a past experience when he's using nothing but past tense verbs. 
in the first half of Romans 7. And then he's talking about a continuing, ongoing experience when suddenly he intentionally changes and shifts to using all present tense verbs through the rest of Romans chapter 7. So at verse 15, there's that switch that he moves into present tense. And, you, and many of your English translations bear that out to some degree or another. There's a past tense where Paul speaks about his experience in the past. And there's an ongoing experience that in some ways doesn't sound truly Christian. It sounds like a Christian life, but victory is missing. And yet it sounds like our experience too often. The first half of Romans 7, well, verse from 7 to 13. What does the law do? What does it bring? Is, is, the law, is the law itself sin? Is the law the problem? That God should never even given that law. It was a setup. God did something wrong there all the way from the beginning. To Jewish people, that might seem like that's what Paul's saying. And remember, the Roman church is Jewish and non-Jewish. And it was begun with the Jewish background believers. They're expelled from Rome by the emperor because of some riots. The, gen- the non-Jewish believers are left. The-, the church takes on a much more non-Jewish flavor. And then the Jewish people are allowed to return to Rome. So Jewish Christians are allowed to return to those same churches. But the churches have changed somewhat. And now the church needs to learn what is it to live Together, the non-Jewish and the Jewish as one new identity in Christ. Not Jewish or Roman, but Christian. And that balance is what's being worked out here. It's in Romans 6, it's in Romans 7. In Romans 6, there's a tendency on the non-Jewish people to throw out the law. Romans 7, there's a tendency of the Jewish background people to uphold the law and still want to live by it. And you have those tensions in the church even today. Do we throw out the law and just do as we please because Jesus has saved us? Or do we then try to, now that we have been saved in Christ, born again to new life, we're going to try to dutifully follow the law in all of its prescribed manners as carefully as we can? That same question is lingering out there today. So what does law do for us? What is it good at? Moses can't give life, but the law is good at exposing sin. Look at verse 10. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. But it shows sin. Verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death? Did the law bring death? No, not at all. Don't even think that, he says. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. What the law is good at is showing sin as sin, showing, revealing what is in us as ugly as it is, as damaging and hurtful as it is, that it even condemns us through something which is good and holy and right. The very spoken, revealed word of God in his law now, which was, in, was to give life, do these and you shall live, but it ends up resulting in death. Why? Because of sin in us, no one can do it. So even what is good becomes 
death for us at sin's hands. The law is good at exposing sin as the evil that it is. What we do then is we allow the law to do what it's good at. We allow the law to show sin to be sin. We allow the law to reveal our guilt, not so we can roll up our sleeves and work harder and try to somehow measure up, but to allow the law to chase us to Christ. To allow the law to be, as Paul explained to the to the Galatians, to allow law and its requirements, which we can't measure up to, to allow it to be a schoolmaster, a child conductor that leads us to Christ and forgiveness that is in Jesus alone. Even the sacrifices of the law do that. Don't they point to the fact that I have sin that needs to be atoned for? That I have sin that needs to be paid for? And the life of an innocent one in my place? Even the law paints the picture in advance. And, and those, those sacrifices, however, they have to be perpetuated. They have to be continued because they don't take away sin. But Jesus, by his one death, once for all, forever takes away sin. He's never to die again. You see, the, the, the pattern, the law, is good at showing us our need for Christ and pointing us to the innocent sacrifice who would die in our place. Let the law do what it's good at. On the other hand, sin's rebellion continues even when we have seen that, even when we have allowed our sin to be exposed, we confront it for what it is, we come to faith in Christ, and yet we still have this wrestling with sin within us. That's what, what is, is, is described in the second half in the present tense. Oh, you know, I should, I should mention one more thing. I said there's a bigger picture with the law. Something that's come out more recently that people have grabbed hold of is this big narrative. I pointed out in, in Romans chapter 6, there you have the exodus. There you have the crossing through death into new life on the other side. And the slave master cannot shout across those waters that wiped out the Egyptian army. He cannot shout across and command them to make bricks. They can still listen to that voice out of habit, but they don't need to. They've been set free. They have been set free from a former taskmaster, a slave master, whether he likes it or not. So they, they're now free to live new. That's Romans 6. That's, that's through death to new life as we live out in baptism. That a person is buried with Christ in baptism in order to be raised from the dead to new life. The exodus into a new life on the other side of the Red Sea. But then there's the coming of the law at Mount Sinai. And where Paul himself says, but when the commandment came, sin revived. Sin stood up in rebellion against it, and I died. And that is Israel's experience at Mount Sinai. When the commandment comes, the, the, there's a tone change in the book of Exodus. From, from the early chapters of Exodus, when look what God is doing for them. Look how God is providing. Look how God is giving them victory over the Amalekites. And, and even when Moses' arms are tired, there are two on the other side that hold up his arms. And, and Israel prevails in victory. But then there comes the giving of the law at Sinai. And they're bound to this covenant. And they affirm, yes, these things are good. We will do it. And then, immediately after the law is given, what do they do? Moses has gone a long time. Couldn't we have a different God? Maybe a God that would work on our schedule. 
Maybe, maybe something that's familiar to us. Maybe we, maybe we have a, a golden calf that we worship. And, and they, as, as soon as that law is given and ratified, Israel breaks it. They, they worship another god instead of, of Yahweh. They form an image of this new god. They, they, they then give themselves to other sin as they rose up to play is a polite way of describing it. And as soon as the commandment comes, sin revives. Sin stands up against it. Sin rises in rebellion. And that, brothers and sisters, continues while sin continues within our mortal bodies. So there's an Israel in Sinai moment there that leaves Israel wandering in the wilderness. This wilderness of Romans 7, if you will of knowing God's will, but unable to measure up to it. So, in, uh, in, the, in the second half there, we have this, uh, this tension that is really epitomized in verse 15. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. He's careful to, to um, qualify there because there's more to Paul now than just which dwells in his flesh. He's going to lean into that in, in, in a few more verses here where he's going to speak to the Spirit of Christ who indwells all believers. But there's nothing good in me, that is, what I mean by that is in my natural humanity. For I know that nothing good dwells in me in my flesh. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. There's an identity issue here going on as well. Who am I now? Am I the new creature in Christ, or am I still the old man wanting to sin? Sin is still in me, but I am new. That's the, that's the statement Paul's clearly making. You have been made new, although we still live this new life in these weak mortal bodies still subject to sin. And so when the will of God comes to us, our, the sin in us still rebels against it, raises up in resistance, asserting its own will over God's will. That continues. What does that look like? Well, again, there's this balance going on in uh, Roman uh, non-Jewish versus Jewish, and the tendency could be for, to exalt one over the other. One of the ways that looks today, that idea of dismissing Israel in the Old Testament past, we see that in, in religion today. In fact, it, it, over the centuries, grew up in the Roman church, so that the Christian church in Rome, or the powerful expression of that Christian church in Rome, grew to the point that they understood themselves as replacing Israel in God's purposes. There was no further plan for Israel. This church, as headed in Rome, took the place. They established their own church law. They established their own priesthood to take the place of a former priesthood. They established their own temples and their continuing offerings that would continue in, that, in those places, such that the sacrifice even of Jesus is repeated week after week after week. That's the perpetuation of the sacrifice of the cross. 
There's an altar in those churches. Now, we, we, we understand that in the church there is not an altar. We might use that language figuratively, come to the altar. Lay, lay your life on the altar. But there's not a physical altar where we offer a physical or especially a blood sacrifice any longer. Because Christ died for us once for all, the just for the unjust that he would bring us to God. You see the same thing, a later American um, Christian expression in Mormonism, which again came up with its own priesthood, its own laws, its own scriptures, its own temples, even its own priesthoods. There's another place you see this tendency to, to replace Israel and to put ourselves in a place where we're going to keep some, some form of law and make ourselves righteous. Whether it's in a religious setting, I've described a couple of those, where people still, by law, are going to make themselves righteous. But what about in our society as a whole? What about in an irreligious or a secular society? The same principles. There is sometimes an unspoken, or it's an unwritten code. It's an ambiguous law. It changes, but it's very real, and when you don't measure up to it, you will know it. Let me give an example of that. The shaming of the ambiguous laws of a cancel culture. You may have heard, this may have been traumatic for you, but the Bachelor host, Chris Harrison, was canceled this week. He made apparently racially insensitive remarks that could not stand, could not be forgiven. There's nothing less but left but simply to cancel him, remove them. There is no redemption here. What was it that he said that was so scandalous, so shocking, that it could not stand? Well, he was speaking of, of the incident of, of one of the contestants on the show who had some things emerge from her past. And here he is speaking about those things that emerged out of somebody else's past and the rush to judgment upon her. He said, this again is where we all need to have a little grace. A little understanding, a little compassion. I haven't heard her speak on this yet. Until I actually hear this woman have a chance to speak on this, who am I to say any of this? Who am I to judge her or condemn her? Isn't that shocking? Isn't that scandalous that he would say such a thing? What do you mean? What do you mean this is a place where we need to have a little grace? Later on, he had to add, well, I do not speak for Rachel. My intentions were simply to ask for grace and offering her an opportunity to speak in her own behalf. What I now realize that in doing so, I have, I have caused harm for wrongly speaking in a manner that perpetuates racism. And for that, I am deeply sorry. Wow. I don't know about you, but I'm a little confused. How giving her room for a little grace, giving her a chance to be heard for herself, is in fact perpetuating racism. What did she do? It must have been horrible. It clearly is unforgivable. Rachel's offense, and uh, I, I, I don't follow the Bachelor. I will confess, I'm speaking somewhat out of ignorance. So those of you that are 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 devoted fans of the show, we'll talk later. Rachel's offense was attending an Old South-themed party. This is a, a plantation-themed party, an antebellum South-themed party where everybody dresses up in character in period costumes. And, uh, and her response shows the weight. When, when, uh, this, this, this was back in 2018. 
And now the pictures have reemerged, and so she must respond to it. And her response shows the weight of guilt. Even this social law, this cancel culture law, brings upon us in its desperation to somehow earn forgiveness of others. This is what she said in response. Once a photo of her from this, this Old South party emerged, back in 2018, I'm sorry to the communities and individuals I've offended. I'm ashamed of my lack of education, and it's nobody's responsibility to educate me. I was ignorant. I didn't even know that command, thou shalt not go, to Old South parties in 2018. I was ignorant, but my ignorance was racist. She added, I deserve to be held accountable for my actions. I will never grow unless I recognize what I have done is wrong. I don't think one apology means that I deserve your forgiveness, but rather I hope to earn your forgiveness through my further actions. Now, first may I say that systemic racism, intersectionality and critical race theory were not even being talked about in the public square in 2018. So sure, Rachel was ignorant, and I don't mean that as any insult against Rachel. She didn't know these things were going to be a a sin a few years later. And so she's caught, but she's desperate to earn forgiveness, to earn your forgiveness. This in a show where more than two seven dozen women are competing week by week, slowly being eliminated in the competition for one bachelor's affection. And there's nothing wrong with that. I confess, I'm ignorant too. I don't understand. But what would you say in that kind of a social milieu with the pressure of how can I be made right? How can I earn the forgiveness of others? Let's say you're Rachel's friend. Or maybe you just happen to sit on the bus and after you get over the, oh, oh, wow, you're Rachel. Ooh, should I sit next to you? Oh, well, still you're famous and you're talking with her. But then, what would you say to Rachel? Desperate to find a way to earn the forgiveness of others. She has sinned in ways that she didn't fully know, but Jesus knows. Maybe something in her was mocking others. Jesus knows that. And Jesus died for you, Rachel, to pay for all of it. Forgiveness cannot be earned, but it has been given And you can freely receive it by believing Jesus who died for you. Maybe you could say to Rachel the words of that old song concerning the the futility of earning forgiveness. Could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal or earnestness? Um, No fading, no. These for sin could not atone. You must save, God, you alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's what you could say to Rachel. In fact, that's what you can say to yourself. The next time guilt grabs hold of you, 
The next time you're reminded of how you don't measure up, and you do not, and you will not. The only way we measure up is in Christ. We are fully accepted in the Beloved. I have died in Christ, and I have been raised in Him to walk in His newness of life. That is my standing. Let me give one more example of how this plays out. This, this um, carefulness about what we expect from law, what it can do but what it can't do. Let's talk about parenting for a minute. What's the first word a child normally learns? I know we want it to be mama. Uh, maybe even better, dada. Yeah, I like that. But chances are it might be simpler. Maybe it would be no. <laughs> Why is that one? I know it's only one syllable. Doesn't need to be repeated, but they do. It comes out very easily. No, no, no. Where did they learn that? Well, you taught it to them. Well, it emerges within them in response to your rule or your request, your standard. But that stirs up this response of rebellion in them, but you also gave them words to express it in, probably in our laying down the law to them over and over again. No, 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 no! Trying to chase that little one around the house, right? And no seems to be your most common tool. We teach it to them as we, we teach, in a sense, we're, we're, we're reinforcing rebellion as we lay down law. It will stir it up. Now, now, be careful here. There need to be rules. There need to be laws. I am not arguing for free-range children, okay? I'm not suggesting that. But I'm saying in, in what, what, how do we apply then the reality of this is what law does. The law needs to be laid down in order to lead us to Christ in a sense. There is the law and there's the gospel. And I need to know my need for God's salvation before I can believe God for his salvation. And yet, in that, in that transition of parenting, we are not raising children to be children. We are raising children to be, be adults. We are moving toward maturity. And so there certainly needs to be a transition along the way from fences to destinations. From fences of these are the things you must not do, these are the things you must do, to destinations. Uh, from, from rules to principles, to the not the what, but moving to the why. Why do we do these things? What, where, what are we trying to do? What are we trying to accomplish? What is the goal we're going after? And, and, and I, can, I can assure you that whether they are age one or age 14, your children do understand more than they're able to verbalize back. They do get it, and much more is, is, is caught by what they observe and in the environment in which they are beginning to live it out and stretch their wings. For instance, the demonstration, the living out of humility, of confession and forgiveness. I've been blessed and encouraged by Pastor Ryan's description of, of how how humility and confession and forgiveness plays out in their family with the kids one to another. But the most moving times, the most significant times when they really get it is when he has to step into that humility and confess and seek forgiveness in front of them with his wife or even with the children as well. 
and they get it and they see it as it's lived out before them. So you will need rules. I'm not saying throw out, throw out all the family standards, but I'm saying that has got to be administered in grace because that's how God grows his children. Now, having reminded us of our tendency to want to earn the approval of God and the approval of others, and that that's a hill, that tendency is a hill that's impossible for us to climb, we're going to return then to the foundation. Jesus died for me. This is not new. This was, this was laid out in Romans chapter 3. This is how Romans chapter 4 ends, that we, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is how chapter 5 ends, that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ. This is how chapter 6 ends, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. This is how chapter 7 begins and ends. Look at verse 4 again. You, brothers and sisters, have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit to God. While we're living in the flesh, our sinful passions are aroused by the law, our work in our members to bring fruit to death. But now, verse 6, but now we who were are released from the law, having died to what we held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the flesh. We could move from there right into Romans 8, but let's catch the angst that we experience in the present tense, along with Paul himself, in verse 24 of chapter 7. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Have you ever been there? Have you felt that? Have you felt the desperation of, I don't want to continue doing this thing. I don't want to continue being like this. I don't want to continue in this way that ends up hurting someone else like the sharp edges of that broken glass. Who will deliver me? How can I have victory in the midst of this life while I still rattle around in this broken glass flesh? That's the cry of Paul's heart. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's the cry of our heart. We experience that tension also. And the experiencing of the tension, the anguish of it is not hopeless. The anguish of it is hope because that's the spirit of the living God crying out in the new man against the tendencies of this weak flesh that we still exist in. But that's a new tension. That's a new anguish. That's a new struggle that's caused by the new life within us. The answer is in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So then he moves to chapter 8, that we live that new life, we live that fruitful life by God's Spirit. In verses 1 to 3 of chapter 8, I do not face any condemnation. I don't face any looming judgment for what I do. I've been freed from sin because it's been paid for in death. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? I died in Christ. It's been paid for. Whatever it is, there is no condemnation. There is no cancel with God. I have been received. I have been accepted. I have been brought home. 
So that I'm free then, out, no longer in fear of being canceled, no longer in fear of condemnation and judgment, I'm free to live. Not having to try to earn, strive for any approval by God. He has done that for me. I'm free, I'm invited, I'm called to live in his new life. Verse 4. Well, verse 3, let me back up. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. But by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, according to our natural human ability, trying to keep a list of rules, but who walk according to the Spirit. We're going to unpack that more, what that means, what that looks like. How do we step into that? We're going to unpack that more next week, but realize that's where Romans 7 pushes us. We cannot... Moses can't do that for us. It's only experienced in new life in Christ. So then we come to the conclusion, and looking at the time, the time is slipping away. There's a tension, the tension of verses 5 to 9 of Romans 8. Think of it in Romans 7 terms. It's another way of of describing the tension of Romans 7 with the realization of our new identity in Christ and the Spirit calling us in a new direction. So it's not just now the flesh dragging us backward, but the Spirit is now, in Romans 5 5 to 9, calling us forward. Verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. In verse 6, I'm going to shift to a different translation. The Net Bible expresses some of this very nicely. The outlook of the flesh is death, and the outlook of the Spirit is life and peace. So if you're setting your mind on the things of the flesh, the flesh's outlook is death. That's the direction it's headed in. If you set your mind on the things of the Spirit, the Spirit's outlook is life. That's the trajectory you're going to set yourself on. But you are not in the flesh. Verse 9, you are in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. How do I know if the Spirit of God lives in me? If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, now he shifts the terminology, but it's the same Spirit, this person does not belong to him. Everyone who belongs to God is indwelt by the Spirit of the living God, is indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. Everyone who has believed in Jesus is indwelt by God's Holy Spirit. God says under the new covenant, I will put my Spirit within them. It is God who works in you, both to will by his spirit, and to do according to his good pleasure. We are not left alone. We are not left our own. God works in us. And so verse 11, my favorite verse in Romans 8 probably, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit which dwells in you. That verse is not talking about the future resurrection, which is also true. That verse is talking about new life now, even in this weak flesh, by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit as we yield ourselves to him, as we follow that spirit, as we we don't quench the spirit or grieve the spirit, but rather walk in the spirit. We'll talk about those things next week. But as Romans 6 brought us through the Red Sea into new life. As Romans 7 brought us face to face with laws 
commands which cannot deliver but will condemn. That condemnation brings us to cry out to need a new life in Christ, a life that's beyond us, a life that we cannot live but that God will give us this new life. God invites us into his inheritance by the enabling power of his Holy Spirit. We have been freed from condemnation, and we are enabled, we are enlivened, we are energized by the Spirit of the living God who dwells in us. In Joshua, the Lord tells Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Therefore, it's time to go. Because Joshua could lead the people of Israel into a place that Moses never could. Moses couldn't keep his own law. Moses couldn't enter that inheritance. Moses himself couldn't keep the law. He's told to strike the rock once, and he struck it twice. And God says, you cannot enter. Moses cannot bring us into God's life. It had to be Joshua. Why Joshua? And why is Joshua's name Joshua, which means Yahweh is salvation? Joshua's name is Joshua. Yahweh is salvation, not me, myself, and not the law of Moses. Yahshua, Yahweh is salvation because Yahshua of the Old Testament comes into the New Testament. You've heard his name. In Greek, you know it as Jesus. Jesus leads us into eternal life with God that Moses could never bring. What does John say? The law came by Moses. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And it's in him we stand. It's in him you live. Relish glory in his forgiveness. Glory that he has forever released you from any notion of condemnation and he has given you a new identity as God's own. It's identity that you can now live in even though imperfect because in your life too, God is doing something new. God is making something beautiful. More beautiful than a lousy elephant out of broken glass. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, we are humbled by that reality that you make all things new, even even us. And Father, I know there is someone here this morning that needs that new life, that needs to know what it is to be made new in Christ, that need right now, right where they sit, to do business with you. Yes, God. I am guilty. I am shamed. I have not done what I should. I can't. And Lord, God, I need your forgiveness. And right now, I believe you, God, concerning Jesus, your son, whom you say died for me to forgive my guilt and to give me life with you. And I receive that just by believing you concerning Jesus. And Father, there are those of us throughout this room who yet wrestle with the tension of wanting to live new and yet this mortal flesh and sin that resides there. 
Oh, Father, would you continue to give us victory in living by the strength, by the power of your Spirit? Would you indeed both will and work in us your good pleasure, that what pleases you, so that you may be glorified? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.